0: Hey! Welcome to urban planning is not boring. I'm Sam, and I'm not. Hi. Yeah. (laughs) Hi. Welcome back, guys. (laughs) We just finished our little class with Abundant Housing LA. You can still sign up. The link is in their bio and you can go to our Instagram and find more details because all the thing, all the sessions are recorded and posted on their website. So you can sign up still if you're interested in below market housing and all the ins and outs. Yes.
1: Yes. And today Sam and I are going to give you a very high level overview of what we talked
0: about with our class tonight. Yeah, we're going to give you a little taste so that you want to go back for more. Yes. Other sessions like that. Um we did an introduction to affordable housing. So we we ran the gamut. We did we talked about a lot in an hour. Um very high level. Um So I just realized that I... Okay, so we started basic understanding affordable housing. And I think one of the things that's really important that a lot of times people, you know, it's unclear when you are saying affordable housing is capital A or big A affordable housing or little A affordable housing. So capital A, big A affordable housing for the purposes of the housing element, which is in the general plan, refers to housing that is affordable to households at extremely low income, very low income, low income, and moderate income levels. And generally what that means is regardless of kind of your income level, so you might be making 30% of the area's median income, you should still be paying no more than 30% of the household income towards rent. Otherwise you would be considered rent burdened. Correct.
1: So little a affordable housing is more similar to attainable housing or unsubsidized profitable housing developments that meet the needs of those with incomes between 80 and 120% of the area median income. So when Sam and I are talking about being, you know, In kind of newly in our careers, and we're making great money, but we still cannot obtain affordable housing. We're talking about little a affordable housing because we are spending a large share of our income towards rent, which is very expensive.
0: Yeah. And you might be asking, what is area median income? And basically, what that is is the midpoint of a specific area's income distribution. So if you took like Algebra or whatever, you'd know, like the median is the middle. And so there's all these different kind of tiers of kind of these brackets that define affordable, big A, affordable housing. So acutely low income is zero to 15% of AMI, extremely low is 15 to 30%, very low is 30 to 50% of AMI, low income, I don't know why it says lower, low income. Is fifty to eighty percent of AMI, and then moderate income is when you might still be, you know, eighty percent, but you might also be above the area median income. But because rent prices are so crazy, it still might be hard to afford the prices of rent. Correct. And I think we cannot. Um.
1: So. Then we kind of wanted to talk about how we're defining certain key terms. So, when we're talking about supportive housing, this is tied to big A affordable housing. And supportive housing is known as housing with no limit on the length of stay that is occupied by a target population, and that is linked to an on-site or off-site service provider that assists the supportive housing resident. So, if you've heard of permanent supportive housing units, this is the the type of units that we're talking about. And when we are defining a target population, this is defined by the California Housing Element Law as an individual with low income who has one or more disabilities that can include mental illness, HIV or AIDS, substance abuse, or other chronic health conditions.
0: And then we went into zoning, because zoning is super important when you talk about housing. Um, It informed a lot of why the housing landscape looks the way that it does today. And I know we've talked about zoning before, so I'm not going to go into super um, depth on this, but, um, you know, we've talked about exclusionary zoning, which refers to policies that explicitly or implicitly seek to prevent people of certain races, ethnicities, or income levels from buying homes in specific neighborhoods. And this has been used as a tool to maintain racial homogeneity and exclude quote, undesirable residents, um, sometimes through outright banning of specific ethnic groups, um, which is, you know, redlining. We've talked about redlining before. And also, you know, single family zoning is kind of a piece of exclusionary zoning where we're not gonna allow multifamily apartments or any type of multifamily housing for that matter, just single family detached homes, which is have a pretty big barrier to entry. And then we went into kind of the the other side of zoning, inclusionary zoning, which refers to a range of policies and practices that mandate or provide incentives for the inclusion of affordable housing units in new developments to encourage mixed income neighborhoods and increase the supply of affordable housing. And it's really meant to counteract the long lasting effects of exclusionary zoning and to desegregate the housing market by ensuring the ongoing production of affordable housing. And as we we've talked about SB9 before, we went into kind of some details about SB9 and how this effectively ended single family zoning, although still, I don't know if there's been enough time or you know, this law being put into practice to really see the long-term um, effects of it because it is so new. And we gave um, Jump in Whatever a very brief overview of the homelessness in California.
1: Yeah. So, yeah. So, when we're talking about the homelessness kind of challenges facing the state of California or the city and county of Los Angeles, you know, California, as we all know and are very aware of, um, Sam, can you hear that? No. Oh. Okay. Sorry. My phone is pinging on my computer. Apologies. Pause. So when we're talking about the homeless, uh, the homelessness issues that are facing the state of California, California has the largest homeless population in the nation. And we build only a fraction of the affordable housing that residents need. This was also exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic and the economic impacts that have, you know, caused, other kind of challenges surrounding the state. And um, just a really quick, you know, kind of tidbit is that Californians make up 12% of the total U.S. population, but we account for 28% of the homeless population and 51% of its unsheltered homeless population. And local governments have issued building permits. Less than one fifth of those permits have been issued for low income housing which is a very, very severe challenge. And this is what we say when we talk about the limited supply, not meeting the high, high demand. And the consequences of that can be, you know, kind of tenfold. But we see that 1.6%, I mean, 1.6, sorry, 1.6 million renter households spend more than half of their income on housing. And California ranks worst in the nation in rent overcrowding. And individuals who are experiencing homelessness, particularly youth who are experiencing homelessness, are twice as likely as their classmates to either be suspended from school, be chronically absent, drop out, or not graduate. And so high housing costs can often lead to frequent moves, can force families to live in unhealthy substandard housing, and homeless individuals who who can experience chronic pain, high rates of premature mortality, and are at higher risk of communicable diseases. So we can See that the impacts of homelessness are very severe and the consequences are just very, very hard to even think about.
0: This is kind of fun because we're kind of switching roles because, yeah, Yeah. that was my slide in the presentation. you're, (laughs) You're taking your go. So, we talked about some of the benefits of affordable housing. Um, and I think we can kind of tag team this, but I think something that we talked about, we've talked about. Briefly, before is like a housing first policy, which is basically the idea of like a lot of people will say, well, we need like mental health services first, or we need, you know, psychiatric, whatever, like, you know, all these different things are what we need to fix the problem. When I think an increasingly popular stance is no, first we need housing. People need a roof over their head, they need some stability in their life. And you know, we actually asked a question to the people in the class of, you know, some of the other benefits that could come with the provision of affordable housing. And a lot of them were about just, you know, the feeling of security and peace of mind and well-being and being able to set up a long-term like security of, you know, I'm, I have a house, I don't have to worry about, um, you know, operating from survival mode all the time. And so I think that plays a really key role in some of the more social benefits of affordable housing.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, this kind of housing first approach is a big driver in Kind of the concept that when you have shelter, then you can begin to address the kind of associated challenges that you're also facing, whether that may be mental illness or drug and alcohol addiction or, you know, uh, chronic disease, whatever it may be that the provision of housing and particularly big A affordable housing then is able to meet needs through supportive services or wraparound services that can provide that kind of aid that we're looking for. But it really should be, the focus should be on shelter first.
0: And we talked a little bit about the economic benefits, um, primarily being generational wealth um, as, you know, kind of, when you're able to save money, buy a house, pass on that wealth to the next generations, that's kind of been a big thing in in the states for a long time as the peak of what people want to achieve. Um and I think, you know, another benefit just being, you know, people can actually save even if it's not to buy a house. Like yeah. you can you cannot be paying 50 plus percent of your income on rent which is absurd.
1: Yeah. Yeah. When you free up more, when I'm sorry, when you're paying less money towards your housing, you're freeing up more money to be able to afford the basic needs, such as food, clothing, you know, health insurance, the big one that we're constantly talking about. Not every employer provides health insurance. And if you have to pay for your own, if you're spending more than 50% of your income towards housing, and that other 50 then has to become split between, you know, all of your basic and essential needs, then what ends up happening is you start kind of rationing. So you say, oh, you know what, maybe I don't need health insurance because I actually need to eat every day of the week and I have to eat three times a day. And, you know, when we talk about that, it's really, you know, you don't really begin to kind of even understand like how difficult that must be not only for a single individual but imagine a family with children who have to say you know what i have to buy my children you know clothes so you know maybe we're going to we're going to have to you know cut out the health insurance but then what if an accident happens and so the list just goes on the challenges are are just tenfold and so you know freeing up that income allows you just more stability and more opportunity to be able to actually afford just living and
0: living comfortably Yeah, definitely. And something that I don't know if we've talked about in depth on the podcast before that we kind of wanted to provide some background on is the general plan. And general plans, you know, they govern kind of the way that cities, regions, communities work. Um, there's seven required elements, sometimes eight, um, land use, which is what to put where, and it basically envisions the future of a city or County interacting with all the other, other elements of planning. So like zoning can fall into land use, um, circulation, which is not just, you know, transportation of people, but also goods, uh, water, sewage, storm drainage, um, communications, like. Internet, Wi-Fi, all that. Um, housing, which obviously was what we focused the most on, providing adequate housing for all residents. Um, and then there's some others like safety, noise, open space, and conservation, and often go hand in hand. And if a city or county has identified disadvantaged communities, they must also address environmental justice in the general plan as kind of an eighth element, and that often includes things like air quality. And this all ties in because of Rena, which I know we've talked about
1: so many times. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So so Rena, you know, of course, as Sam and I have talked about uh, about a billion times on the podcast, the regional housing needs assessment. Is just the state housing law, which gives an allocation to a metropolitan planning organization that then has to distribute the housing based on a need across their uh, their cities and counties. And so there's the determination, which calculates the housing need in each region, then the allocation, which is the distribution uh, based on need to cities and counties, and then the housing element, which is the requirement of RENA that jurisdictions must plan for their RENA allocation in their housing elements. And just really quick very general tidbit um in the last rena cycle which was our sixth rena cycle we had a 1.34 million housing unit need uh that was the rena allocation for the skag region which is our region or well not sam's anymore because you're not in la county <laughs> miss you <laughs> but for la county if you're in la county san bernardino county imperial county ventura um This is the need for our jurisdiction. We have 1.34 million units that need to be built in eight years in order to address the significant backlog as well as the future need based on population growth.
0: And a question that we got that, you know, was really interesting is like, wait, so you're saying that in RENA, you have to plan, but you don't have to build, which is like so stupid. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But like, it is just how Rena is saying
1: the concept of Rena is stupid. Not the question, the question. Oh yeah. 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 The
0: question was a great question. The concept of like, you're going to plan for all this, but we're not actually going to like make you build any of it. That part, that part is stupid. Yeah.
1: I'm very curious who wrote this law and was like, Oh yeah, that's going to get the housing on the ground. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So just moving on to um, the discussion around um, some kind of legislation, Sam, you know, really did kind of a deep dive on the amazing legislation that's been coming out in California, particularly, um, which is where we tend to often focus because, again, as Sam and I have addressed multiple times, we have, you know, the most severe housing shortage. Um, And so there have been multiple.
0: And we live here.
1: Yes, and we live here. And a lot of our listeners are here. Yeah. Um, but if you're in, you know, Australia or, you know, somewhere out of the i S I'm, I'm really sorry, but just, you know, sympathize with us and <laughs> have some empathy because <laughs> yeah. we're struggling. Um, but yeah, so some approved California laws, uh, are AB, uh, 2011, which is the affordable housing and high roads job act. Um, and you can look these up as well as we're listing them off. Um, we have SB six, the middle-class housing act this deems a housing development project as defined and allowable use on a parcel that is within a zone where office, retail, or parking are principally permitted use if specified conditions are met. So a lot of these laws and policies are focused around the fact that regardless of how the um, parcels have been previously zoned, they can accommodate housing if there are specified conditions that are met. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's a very interesting kind of concept because rather than having housing built in areas only zoned for a multifamily or a single family housing, we're now saying, Hey, you know what, if there's a commercial space or, you know, that's vacant, like uh, we're seeing shopping malls now being transformed into multifamily housing. Um, or if there's a vacant parking lot, if certain conditions are met, you can put housing on this parcel. And that's an amazing concept because that really then opens up the supply of land so that we can start building more housing. Um, And then SB 9, as we have talked about so, so many times, which, again, is just being able to subdivide your lot and put up to four units
0: of housing. And there is quite a lot of laws in California in the pipeline, particularly focused on housing. Um, SB 423 basically extends the provisions of SB 35, which Um, helps to ensure that um, construction of new affordable and mixed income homes is accelerated, particularly in the places that they are most needed. Um, SB 35 was scheduled to sunset in the coming years. And so this is just trying to get ahead of that and like extend that date so that this is, this is still in effect. Um, AB 1633 um, aims to end the inappropriate abuse of the California Environmental Quality Act or CEQA C- <laughs> <CECRA, CECRA, laughs> <laughs> jurisdictions that attempt to block new housing developments that have already been found in compliance with local and state land use and environmental regulation. We did do an episode about CEQA, and since then I have learned a lot about CEQA and know the ways that no, better know the ways that it can be a helpful tool and a hindrance. And so I think that this is really interesting that it's commenting kind of on a law that we already have in place and the ways that that can be negative. And then AB 976, which I thought was interesting because I actually didn't know that this was not something that was permanently allowed, but it will permanently extend the ability of property owners to build affordable rental ADUs. Um, and these three are among uh, many others. I just kind of picked three, but they are all enrolled, which means that the House and Senate have agreed. Hallelujah. Mm -hmm. And now it is just up to the governor to sign them. And he has a specified amount of time that I don't remember. I believe it's a month. And these were all enrolled in mid-September. So we'll see.
1: Gavin, time's ticking. Let's go.
0: Yeah. Um, (laughs) We've talked about the Builder's Remedy before. So I'm not going to go into that.
1: Yeah, Look, no, the entire episode. episode, yes. Yeah. Go watch the episode, guys. Yeah. <laughs> So we finally come to kind of the challenges that are associated with affordable housing development. When I say affordable, I'm talking about Big A affordable. And as someone who has recently entered the industry of Big A affordable housing development, I have been learning so many different things. And one of the biggest kind of challenges with just housing development in general, even if we're talking about little a market rate, et cetera, is the land acquisition because the sale of land can be quite expensive, particularly in more urban areas due to high demand and limited supply, as well as the accessibility component of being in a more urban area. You have access to different kinds of transit, different amenities, um, making the, the cost of land increase. And so this is why we are often seeing that land is cheaper the farther away you move from an urban center and this is why we kind of see the large swaths of housing development particularly single-family housing development happening in suburban areas also known as bedroom communities Um, so even moving past the acquisition of land, you know, there are the challenges uh, that come up, which are rising costs of construction that includes material and labor costs, you know, they're constantly rising and this is making housing development far more expensive to build. And it often becomes a very steep hurdle for developers to overcome because, you know, in order to build a project, it financially has to pencil out. And when you have not only land acquisition fees, but you have material and labor costs that are right on the rise, um, based on the market trends, you are seeing just significant kind of cost impacts, um, as well as things even as simple as permitting fees, kind of talked about how, you know, I, I used to think that applying for permits for housing, maybe included, you know, maximum five permits. But what I failed to realize was you need a permit for absolutely everything you do when you're in development. Um, and so it could be as simple as just pouring concrete over a one day period, you have to get, you know, a specified permit for that. And that permit can be quite costly. And, you know, there are all of these associated fees with housing development. So the cost impacts can be quite severe.
0: And I'm gonna challenge myself in talking about this because I told Natalie in the thing I would not talk about this, um, because I wasn't confident. But this is a low stakes. I feel this is much lower stakes for some reason, <laughs> even though it's still going out to people. <laughs> um, but I think you know something that really caught my piqued my attention when we took the affordable housing class in grad school was just like the financing structure of affordable housing. It is crazy complex. Um, Natalie, talked about pro formas, which we t- Natalie talked with Peter Ensminger about on the podcast. We're just really referencing all the other episodes, which yeah, is great. <laughs> yeah. Um, so if you're really curious about you know, the ins and outs of financing, affordable housing, go listen to the episode with Peter Ensminger. Um, but basically, you know, there are so many different funding sources and oftentimes they're really competitive. And so whether it's a grant or, you know, another type of subsidy, it's hard. It can be hard to get funding and you might have to apply to like um, many, many sources. And so, you know, I think just the time and effort that it takes to like apply to these and seek out funding sources and then, ultimately get those funding sources is a huge challenge to affordable housing that you might not see with market rate housing, because, you know, market rate housing is ultimately the the goal is to be profitable. Whereas in affordable housing, a lot of the reasons that you are able to have it be, you know, lower rent is that it is subsidized by the government. And so that just adds a level of complexity that market rate housing doesn't really have. Um, yeah. And so, And then we, you know, we talked a little bit about some of the different types of financing sources, like, um, bonds, light tech, tax, other types of tax credits, grants, state grants, um, home program, yada, yada. And then we talked about regulatory hurdles, which Natalie definitely has more experience in because I've never done this really, but just like the time that it takes to get all the permits and the funding sources. And then to like, you know, keep moving along, even though all you hear about is inflation and all the prices of everything going up. And so it's just like this hard thing that you have to juggle.
1: Yeah. As with affordable housing development, you're also, um, you know, when you're applying for, These various funding sources, they often come with very stringent uh, conditions that have to be met. And so as the affordable housing developer, when you're receiving that funding, you are also having to go through a very lengthy process of showing proof that you provided or made good on what you said you were going to provide in whatever, you know, development project that you're working on and when you are providing this proof you are also subject to the timelines of public agencies, which are often, you know, not working according to your timeline, which as an affordable housing developer, we're on a very strict timeline and public agencies are kind of on their own timeline, which, (laughs) you know, makes the process very difficult because you are often just waiting on, you know, certain approvals and, It can take, you know, just for one document can take upwards of two weeks just to get someone to review it and sign off on it. And that can be very, very challenging when you are working on very strict timelines to make sure that your pro forma and your financial uh, analysis is penciling out as you're moving through your critical path of development.
0: Yep. And then we moved on to our favorite topic, NIMBYs. (laughs) Is that our favorite? No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) It's our favorite because we like to shit on them. Yeah. Um, NIMBYs and, you know, community opposition is often one of the biggest challenges surrounding affordable housing development. Um, You know, there's a lot of negative stereotypes and kind of these narratives that surround permanent supportive housing, particularly for people who are or were homeless. Um, and even just like more general affordable housing and, you know, the quote people like that it attracts and, you know, whatever, which is so backwards because when you think about how to get, you know the quote undesirable people out of the situation that they're in, it is giving them the basic needs that they, that they have. So it's, you know, you want, you don't want to see homeless people, you know, whatever. You don't want to see them on the street but then you also don't want to do the things that they would need to get out of the current situation that they are in so it's very backwards and I kind of wish that we had that I had thought about that when we were doing the yeah. presentation but we've we've gotten it out there now yeah
1: hopefully people who watch the presentation and watch our class are like oh I want to listen to the podcast and then they listen to this episode and they hear what you just said
0: 100% yeah 100% All right. Yeah, I'm going to pass it off (laughs) because you're the expert.
1: Oh, gosh, the expert of funding. (laughs) So when we're talking about funding sources for affordable housing, um, I kind of already alluded to this, but um, just more specifically, the California Department of Housing and Community Development, also known as HCD, provides various kind of grants and funding applications that developers can compete for. And often these grants and the funding is competitive, obviously, because the money is limited. And while often people say, oh, my gosh, so much money is being, you know, Know, dedicated to affordable housing well let me tell you something affordable housing is not cheap to build um and so the money really does uh it, it's not long lasting i can tell you that um and so these processes are quite competitive so the grants and funding resources are released through something known as a notice of funding availability uh, which can be found on hcd's website and other various um Uh, websites across counties, cities, and and the state of California. Um, And so these applications, as I mentioned, are very competitive. And so the funding is limited, which makes the stakes extremely high for affordable housing development. Um, And so when someone is, you know, making a comment as to like, why, why can't we build affordable housing, you know, more quickly? Like, why does it take so long? Or why is it so expensive? Um, The reason why it does take so long is because it's, not really a a great incentive to have to front so much money Just in order to apply to receive more money that's competitive, that you might not get. It's a big, big challenge. And so um, this can often be a disincentive for affordable housing development. Um, But the state of California does also budget for affordable housing development, as I'm sure you've read in the news and seen all over. Um, And so they release that money to state and local government agencies um, for affordable housing developers to apply for as well. So that's another resource um, for funding. And then the holy grail of affordable housing development is the Litech program. And so the LIHTC program was created by the Tax Reform Act of 1986, and it's known as the Low Income Housing Tax Credit Program. It's offered by the California Tax Credit Allocation Committee, and it is probably one of the most important resources to affordable housing developers because this program facilitates both private capital investment with the development of affordable housing. And so essentially what happens is developers receive tax credits for a project, from the state of California that they can then sell to equity investors. Um, I said during the class, it's kind of like cash for credits. Um, And equity investors are very eager to purchase tax credits because these credits reduce both the federal and state tax liabilities as well as reduce the overall tax burden on a corporation. So it's a huge incentive for equity investors to purchase these tax credits. Um, And it's a bigger incentive for affordable developers to say, hey, I'll sell you my credits.
0: Give me money because we need it. <laughs> um, yeah. So that was like a really brief rundown of kind of what we talked about. And I, I would say if you're interested in affordable housing um, and, you know, I think it it's most helpful if you live in California, this particular class, because it is based in California. I would highly recommend signing up for it. Um, you know, if you can afford it, there are a lot of opportunities for scholarships and and discounts. So definitely email. I'll put the, the information about the course in the description, but definitely email, um, the individual listed for, you know, help if, if cost is a burden. I think we said that last time. Um, and yeah, it'll be a really good session. It's called Below Market Blueprint. Blueprint. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it's going to talk about all things affordable housing. Next week is focused on the housing element. Yeah. And so, you know, we talked briefly about the housing element. And next week, we're going to really dive in. So, well, not we, but whoever is presenting will be really diving in. Yeah, um, yeah. just want to plug that.
1: Absolutely. It's exciting stuff. It was a really cool opportunity for Sam and I to participate in this. So shout out to Abundant Housing LA. I was just very, very excited for the opportunity. Sam and I were both really nervous, but we got through it. And um, I think, you know, now we're ending a little... A little tired. So sorry guys if we just blew through that. But if you do want more information, obviously Sam and I are always coming out with new episodes where we can go more into depth into the various topics that we covered. But as we talked about through basically almost this entire um episode. We've covered a lot of these topics in depth. And so if you are curious about certain topics, uh, you can go back through our queue and all the episodes that we have um, that are out and you can just get more information on all the various topics we've covered in more detail.
0: Yeah, seriously, we've covered a lot of those. So listen to all our episodes.
1: Yeah, all at once too. You have to do it in one day in one sitting. (laughs)
0: thanks for tuning in and now we're gonna go pass out yes we're tired yes we didn't now- even like we didn't even like check in with each other we we're just like okay let's do it
1: exactly <laughs> i'm like sam how are you <laughs>
0: Thank you so much for listening. We really hope that you enjoyed this episode of Urban Planning is Not Boring. If you did, please remember to send us to your friends and follow us uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Remember guys, urban planning is not boring. No, it is not.